uh, I took a, a uh, yogurt container and cut off the bottom and then put a little um, uh, LED in it and some light sensors and I strapped it to my face and reflected light off of uh, my eye and then used that to um, track which way my eye was going. And then I built a little circuit to mimic communications of the mouse to the computer. And so that way I could control the cursor uh, with my eyes. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Adam Cohn is a professor of chemistry, chemical biology and physics at Harvard. Quoting his webpage, Adam's lab works on understanding and controlling light-matter interaction in warm, wet, squishy environments. As you probably know, optogenetics aims at controlling neuronal activity with light. Well, Adam's work has worked out the other way around. So to record neuronal activity by converting electrical signals to fluorescent flashes by engineering a gene from a dead sea microorganism. And well, his research goes well beyond this. In 2007, Age 28, Adam was nominated by the MIT Technology Review to the 35 World's Top Innovators Under 35. Adam, I'd be very happy if you could tell us your story, scientific dreams and achievements in like five minutes, please. <laughs> Hard uh, question. Well, thank, you. Uh, thank you for the uh, invitation, Luca, and, and uh, it's nice to meet you. Thanks to the listeners for joining. Um, so uh, my name is Adam Cohen. I grew up in New York City. As a child, I became interested in um, electronics and uh, circuitry, building things. Uh, when I would walk down the streets of New York, I would find televisions and computers in the garbage, and I used to take them home to take them apart to see how they worked. And I set up my uh, bedroom in uh, Manhattan as a little electronics shop. Um, and then uh, when I got to college, I became interested in studying physics um, and chemistry. Uh, and uh, I worked in the lab of George Whitesides, who um, is a professor here in the chemistry department, on uh, the topic of molecular electronics, which at the time was a, a, um, a idea that maybe we could replace silicon with uh, molecular scale devices to um, make even smaller and faster computers. Now, of course, uh, today we're still using silicon chips. And so as a technology that didn't really work out, but um, it was very interesting to study the electrical properties of molecules. And there are um, uh, descendants of these ideas in many of the organic uh, LEDs, for instance, that are in uh, uh, today. After uh, my undergraduate work, I went to Cambridge, UK. Uh, to uh, study there. And initially I was interested in um, some bio nanotechnology areas, but um, for a variety of reasons, I ended up working on doing theoretical work. And I um, studied the theory of the interactions of light with matter and how uh, optical forces could um, affect the uh, mechanical forces between molecules and could affect the properties of matter. I um, did that for a few years uh, and uh, then decided I really love building things and uh, tinkering with my fingers, uh, actually making physical devices. So then I went to Stanford uh, 
and joined the physics department there and uh, joined the lab of W.E. Murner, who um, is a professor in the chemistry department. And uh, there I worked on a project to build a machine to trap and manipulate individual molecules in solution. So you might know that if you have a molecule in uh, water, the molecule can jiggle around randomly from Brownian motion. All, all the water molecules keep banging into it and, and it moves around. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like a classroom of five-year-olds, all, all the molecules going every which way. And this makes it hard to study the individual molecules because they don't hold still. So for my um, thesis work at Stanford, I built a machine which could suppress the Brownian motion of an individual molecule. It worked by uh, using a laser system to track the random motions of the molecule. And then there was a feedback loop that applied electric fields to the solution to induce an electrophoretic motion that canceled the Brownian motion. So this is a little bit like uh, balancing a broom pole on the palm of your hand. Uh, and, you know, whichever one, just push it back in the opposite direction to um, keep the molecule fixed. And this would let us then suspend a single molecule in solution and then uh, study its optical properties for, for, a, uh, for a while um, you know, without the molecule running away. So um, that was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, I spent about four years working on that uh, machine and, and demonstrating it's uh, a couple of uses of it. And then I started my lab at Harvard in uh, 2007 in the chemistry department here. And I vividly remember on the first day walking in and it was just an empty concrete shell of a space. You know, there, there was nothing there. And uh, thinking to myself, oh no, um, what am I going to do? I have to do something. I really had no idea what I was going to do in my lab here. And so for the first few years, we explored a bunch of different um, areas. We, we studied effects of magnetic fields on chemistry. Uh, so, so whether really small magnetic fields could affect chemical reactions. Um, we studied the interaction of light with chiral molecules, which have a handedness, where, so where the molecule and its mirror image are not the same. And then uh, more or less by dumb luck, we stumbled onto um, these proteins that come from a Dead Sea microorganism and can uh, convert the electrical activity of a cell into changes in fluorescence that you can see in a microscope. And uh, this came out of some basic spectroscopic studies. And at the time, I hadn't really studied much neuroscience, but I had a vague notion that uh, neuroscience was, was a thing that people cared about and that there was interest in the electrical activity of cells. Then over the last uh, basically decade, or maybe even a little bit more, my lab has gradually shifted towards applying the, developing these tools and applying them to study uh, different aspects of brain function. And then we became generally interested in understanding brain function and have now started to develop other tools as well to try to um, interrogate the activity of, uh, of neurons and, uh, and other cell types in the brain. Mm -hmm. Using and nice that, and curious yeah. proteins. And nice yeah, and curious proteins will be the main topic of today's podcast. Uh, yeah, briefly before jump into the main topic, I'd like also to ask you if you can spend a couple of words about your Wikipedia level inventions at high school. So you've been a creator and an uh, inventor since uh, old times, I think. Sure, sure. So um, as I mentioned, when I was in high school, I started in um, electronics and, and building different devices. And um, one of the first big projects I undertook was I built an eye tracker for my computer. So this was a, um, uh, I took a, a uh, yogurt container and cut off the bottom and then put a little um, uh, LED in it and some light sensors and I strapped it to my face and reflected light off of uh, my eye and then used that to um, track which way my eye was going. And then I built a little circuit to mimic indications of the mouse to the computer. And so that way I could control the cursor uh, with my eyes. Uh, anyway, that, that was a fun project. And then um, the, the biggest project I worked on in high school is I built a device called a scanning tunneling microscope. This is a um, kind of uh, microscope which can see individual atoms on the surface of a material. And uh, I came to this because I had thought that electron microscopes were you know, these incredibly big uh, and uh, complicated and expensive machines, which required vacuum and high voltage and would be totally out of reach. And then 
When I was uh, in 11th grade, I visited Princeton and I saw that uh, in one of the undergraduate physics labs, this thing called a scanning tunneling microscope, uh, which the students were using, and it was actually quite small. It was about the size of a microwave oven. And so I thought if it's that small, it can't be so hard to build. The way a scanning tunneling microscope works is you take a very sharp wire, and if you cut the wire just right, there's one atom which pokes out on the tip a little bit more than all the other atoms. And if you then take that wire and you very carefully manipulate it to bring it close to a conducting surface, if the wire gets close enough to the surface, the quantum mechanical wave function of the atoms, uh, of the electrons uh, in the wire will overlap with the wave function of the um, uh, atoms on the surface. And you can pass a tiny electric current uh, from the wire to the surface. And that electric current gets bigger if the wire gets closer and smaller if the wire gets further away. And so then if you very carefully move the wire over the surface in a raster pattern, you can map the current and you can map the surface of the sample. And so you can make a map of where the atoms are on the surface of the sample. Yeah, that's and a that, that sounded really cool. Yeah, that is. Uh, and um, it, it, it's a system that the people who invented this in the early 1980s uh, got the Nobel Prize, I think in 1986, for um, inventing this machine. And um, so I decided to build my own. Um, and so I um, made a structure out of Legos to uh, hold all the parts together. And then I used some uh, piezoelectric speakers for doing the fine uh, manipulations and uh, built some electronics. I, I hacked the um, sound card from my computer as the analog to digital uh, converter for, for the, uh, digitization. Um, and um, yeah, and, and so um, eventually I got this to work. It didn't work that well, but it, it worked well enough. Uh, some of the challenges with this, there's a vibration, because of course you need to position the wire relative to the sample with atomic precision. And in New York City, um, we lived up on the 18th floor of an apartment building uh, next to a big highway and next to a heliport. And uh, so of course, there's a huge amount of vibrations uh, in a building like that. And so one day when my parents weren't home, I drilled a hole in our ceiling and um, suspended the whole system uh, from um, elastic bungee cords hanging from the ceiling using some heavy biology textbooks as, as ballast. <laughs> so then this whole thing was, was hanging in the middle of my room uh, and that's how I isolated it from the building vibrations. That's creative. Anyways, uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun to build. I guess guys, now we have understood that Adam is a big inventor. So maybe we can jump to the inventor, which is the main topic of this podcast today. So let's just take cells. Well, cells can themselves take selfies. You know, there are now ways to record the story of single cells from the inside. And Adam has been working on a very cool project. Uh, and I think it is a still a preprint entitled Time Tag Ticker Tapes for Intracellular Recordings. Right? So, um, yeah, Adam, you yep. built an incredible system based on self-assembling proteins to create a timestamp of cellular events but other people are trying to do so with nucleic acids. Can you briefly understand, uh, um, let us understand uh, the system and explain uh, why proteins and non-nucleic acids? I mean, proteins for sure have the advantage to enable real-time monitoring when one uses fluorescent tags, but they have a hard time at multiplexing, whereas CRISPR arrays uh, look more straightforward to my eyes of a student. So yeah, I have a ton of questions regarding this, but maybe first you can start introducing how this works and why proteins. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, I'll just tell you about the system we made and then we can discuss um, the relative um, features of this relative to the um, DNA uh, arrays. So the system that we built is inspired by the um, phenomenon of uh, tree rings in a tree. So if you go into a forest, and you take a, a cross section through a tree, you can see these rings representing the annual growth of the tree. And you can look back sometimes over hundreds of years and you can learn about the climate and other things that happen um, each year uh, just by counting the tree rings and then looking at the growth during that year. And so I thought maybe we could do something similar in cells. If we could get the cell 
to produce some structure which grows um, continuously over time. And then we can put marks in that structure which reflect different aspects in the cell's life. Maybe we can have a permanent record of some aspect of the cell's biology or experience. And so a um, fantastic uh, postdoc in my lab named Ding Chang Lin um, started to look for proteins uh, that um, would grow and would, would have useful properties. Ding Chang is now an assistant professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University. He just started his lab a few months ago. And um, so he, he looked around um, in the literature for, for different proteins, and he came across this um, amazing paper um, which described a protein called uh, PAC4. It's a, it's a protein that's some kinase. Um, its native biological function is not that important. But it turned out that if you produce a lot of this protein in a cell, it crystallizes into these fibers which grow from their ends. And so um, as they grow, um, the, this fiber gets longer and longer, a little bit like a knitting needle inside of the cell. And one of the neat features of this protein's uh, structure, the crystal structure, is that there are pores which run the length of the fibers. And there's a lot of space in these pores. They're about eight nanometers um, across, which is pretty big. So, so, so there's um, the, the, these pores, and um, you can attach different payloads to this PAC4 protein, and they'll get incorporated into the pore. And so uh, as, as they grow, whatever's on the PAC4 protein will, will get incorporated into the pore. And so I thought that this could be a promising approach for um, recording cellular histories. Now, one of the challenges with this approach is that, um, of course, every cell is going to be a little bit different. And these um, proteins, the, the, these fibers, will grow at different speeds in different cells. And so we need something that's like the seasons, some way of marking the passage of time in the real world on these fibers so that we can then connect events that we see on the fibers to the passage of time. And there's many ways you might imagine doing this. Uh, we, we initially have followed a, a fairly simple approach, um, which is as follows. There's a very neat protein called the halo tag, which is a small protein that's not by itself fluorescent. But this protein can form a chemical bond with a particular uh, chemical motif. And you can attach that motif to fluorescent dyes of many different colors. And so what we do, and these dyes can um, go into a cell and get washed out relatively easily. So we fuse the halo tag protein to the PAC4 scaffold. We then add to the cells different colors of dyes at different times. So every couple of hours, we change to a new dye, which is a different color. That dye then labels, it binds to the halo tag proteins and gets incorporated into the scaffold. It is a series of stripes on this growing fiber where each stripe uh, corresponds to a different dye color that we've added. We know exactly when we added the dyes because we look at the watch, we look at the clock when we do it. And so we know that the boundaries between the stripes correspond to specific times Exactly. So let me know if I understand correctly. For now, we are at a validation phase where we have this system that can basically record time and we make sure that this time is consistent for a given cell type to the sequence of uh, dyes that we give to the cells to record time. Now we want to make this a recorder of cellular events, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so far, all we've done is we, we've set up our, our metronome and, and so we, we have these marks which indicate um, every couple of hours exactly what time it is, uh, or what time yeah, uh, on this growing fiber. Then we want to now encode, encode some information on this um, uh, ticker tape that we've created. And um, there are a variety of ways you might imagine doing it. What we've done so far is we've used um, what's called a, a promoter in the cell. So this is a piece of DNA which can be activated in response to some aspect 
of the cellular environment or the cellular physiology. And we use that promoter to drive um, production of a uh, PAC4 scaffold fused to a fluorescent protein tag, which is a different color from all of the dyes that we used for making our timestamps. And so um, when that PAC4 fused to GFP, for example, green fluorescent protein, um, when, when, when that is produced, um, it gets incorporated into the fibers and we get green stripes in the fibers. By recording where those green stripes are relative to our fluorescent dye timestamps, we can learn the history of activity of the particular promoter that we picked. And so um, with that scheme, uh, we picked a promoter uh, called the CFOS promoter. So it's a promoter that gets turned on when neurons are active. So uh, you know, every time you think about your breakfast or whatever you're doing, some, some neurons in your brain become active. And then um, your neurons need to change which genes are expressed um, depending upon their level of activity. And uh, CFOS is one of the ways that neurons do this. And so we, we borrowed that CFOS promoter. And so now when the neurons are active, that leads to green stripes. And so we can record the history of neural activity in the patterns of green stripes in these fibers. And that's where we are today. Um, I, you know, if you like, we can now talk about comparing this to the um, uh, DNA-based ticker tapes, um, and we can talk about um, potential future directions as well for some of these protein-based. Sure, first a quick question. Um, do you try this system also in other cell types? And I think you have ambition to try this then in uh, living systems. So first cell types and then living systems, maybe? Sure, yeah. So we've tried it in a couple of cell types. Uh, we tried it in neurons um, and we tried it in um, a human cell line called HEC cells. Um, these are cells which you, we just grow in the lab. Um, and, and it works in both of those. We haven't yet done a broad survey of lots of different cell types, although I think that could be uh, an interesting thing to do. Ultimately, as you say, our dream is to do this in uh, live animals. And um, th this gets to one of the challenges that we've encountered with the system that we have right now. These fibers that we grow um, are stiff um, and when they first um, start to grow, they undergo a period of very rapid um, growth, uh, which gets them quite long. And the fibers get so long that they're larger than the cell that they uh, are growing in. And so um, they end up um, deforming the membrane of the cell. And uh, so in the cultured cells, it can end up, uh, it looks a little bit like, you know, like, a hamster that swallowed a knitting needle or something <laughs> where you, you have the, these fibers which can extend tens or even hundreds of microns um, beyond the normal boundaries of the cell. Surprisingly, the cells seem not to be so much bothered by this. The, the membrane just deforms around the fiber and um, the fiber is still entirely within the cell, but, but the cell has this uh, sort of long tube yeah. of membrane. I've seen that you had data showing that neurons work well and the electric properties of neurons are not touched by this. Yeah, the, the neurons seem to be fine. And maybe so surprising, if you think about neurons have dendrites and axons, which can extend for uh, you know, centimeters or even meters in, in people away from the cell body. And so neurons are quite comfortable having long membrane tubes, which point out in different directions. And so this is just another membrane tube, which pokes out from the cell. Um, this is in cultured cells. Now, in a live brain, I imagine that it wouldn't be so great for the animal to have you know, a whole bunch of knitting needles um, penetrating through its uh, brain. And so one of the challenges which um, we're working on solving right now is to better control the nucleation and growth of these fibers so that they um, uh, grow in a more controlled way to um, deform the cell as much. And then we're also thinking about other potential scaffold materials 
which might um, either be flexible so that when they get to the side of the cell, they, they, they bend rather than deforming the cell or be in the form of a helix so that you can get a lot of length inside of the cell without bumping to the boundaries. Um, or you know, there, there's a variety of different geometries you could imagine, which, which might be a little bit gentler inside of a brick. I should say that at the same time that we did, um, there was uh, another lab here in Boston uh, led by Ed Boyden, who's at MIT. Uh, and his lab was working on a similar idea. Um, they came up with a different uh, protein scaffold and um, it, it has some different technical properties, but they were able to demonstrate that they could grow these scaffolds in the brains of live mice. Oh, that's big. <laughs> so there are different technologies going towards the same aim, I know, and that's beautiful. And yeah, maybe they're also good to multiplex and to learn from one other. So I think mm -hmm. it's time now to compare your technology and in general protein-based technology to um, DNA and RNA-based RAs, especially CRISPR-based technologies that can record cellular activity. I mean that these uh, protein-level uh, uh, technologies are great because uh, they can have a fluorescent readout, for instance. And as you have discussed until now, they are pretty straightforward to interpret, I guess, while CRISPR arrays maybe require a bit more of uh, computational uh, the multiplexing. But CRISPR arrays, uh, to the eyes of a student, also look uh, better to multiplex to record more events in parallel in a cell, while protein-based arrays are still limited by the fluorescent spectrum. So how do you think this system can multiplex or is it just made for single events and for multiplexing something else is needed? How do you compare to RNA and DNA-based technologies? Great, so um, it's an interesting question. So, so people have been thinking about different recording schemes um, in cells for, for a long time. And um, just recently in parallel with um, the work we were doing, um, several groups have been trying to develop uh, nucleic acid-based uh, recording systems. And most recently, there was a beautiful paper in Nature um, by uh, Jay Schinder's uh, lab, um, where they made a CRISPR-based system. So um, since that's not my lab's work, I'll, I'll uh, talk about it a little bit, but um, you'll have to forgive me uh, in advance if I mischaracterize it um, or, or don't get all the details exactly uh, right. The, the scheme basically is, um, so CRISPR is this amazing new gene editing technology, and there's many different flavors which can do different kinds of transformations. Uh, this DNA typewriter concept, the way it works is that the CRISPR needs to recognize a particular motif on the DNA in order to do its editing. And, uh, or not the CRISPR, the, the, the Cas protein. And um, the system is set up so that the recognition motif on the DNA is only, uh, th there's one complete recognition motif, and then after it, a series of partial ones, which are not yet ready to be recognized. And the um, uh, CAS editor comes in and introduces a little, a, a sort of code into the DNA, and then prepares the next uh, recognition site to be edited. And so then when that one gets edited, that then in some sense unmasks or reveals the next recognition site and so on. And so um, it's like dominoes where each one that gets edited then um, prepares the next one after it to get edited. And so this is a way of ensuring that you get sequential editing. And um, so there's um, two parts step. One is unmasking the next stage and the other is incorporating a little um, DNA sequence, um, which um, has some unique information in it, which is like a barcode, which tells you something about the nature of the um, event that, that's getting encoded, has, has some information. And so you refer to the ability to multiplex, and the multiplexing is this capability to write different sequences in the DNA. And so, so they call this a DNA typewriter, and that's a pretty good analogy because it um, puts different pieces of information in a uh, unique sequence uh, on, the, uh, on the DNA. So um, that, that's super cool. And we used, the, uh, for instance, for lineage tracing um, or um, perhaps for recording other aspects of the history of um, gene expression in the cell. Okay, so um, why, what are the relative merits of the, the protein-based and the DNA-based systems? One difference 
is that the protein-based systems, the readout is by microscopy. And so it's done in real space in the intact sample. And so you read the history of a cell and you know exactly where that cell was. You can look at who its neighbors are. You can look at its shape. You can stain it for other markers. You, you can learn anything else you want. Uh, in contrast, the nucleic acid-based systems, the readout is sequencing. And so this is typically done by grinding up the sample or mushing it up somehow and then reading out the sequences. And so you get the sequence information, but you've lost the information about where that cell was or about anything else about that cell. Another um, uh, difference is that the ticker tape system that we develop based on proteins has an absolute time base. So we know not just the order in which events occurred in the cell, but the actual time at which they occurred. And it's, a, it's an analog system. So you can see how much or little of the protein that you're interested in was incorporated into the cell. And you can even map the, the time course of its activity by looking at fluorescence as a function of position along this fiber. That's great. The, and yeah, you, you, you can also do so for many cells in parallel and with a relative spatial position, I guess. That's right, that's right. The, the um, nucleic acid-based systems are binary. So either the gene was edited or it wasn't. Um, and uh, you don't have any absolute timing information. So you only learn about the order in which events occurred. Um, so that, that's in terms of the systems which um, have been created sort of as they are right now. Um, in terms of future uses, one of the things that I'm excited about for the um, protein-based systems is to um, make the incorporation of uh, fluorescent tags conditional on things other than gene expression. So right now for both the uh, DNA-based systems and the protein-based systems, all we're measuring is activation of different uh, promoters in the cell, turning on a different gene expression program. But of course, Cells' lives is much more than just the genes that they express. Uh, so, you know, neurons fire and have calcium. There's all, all sorts of signaling, kinases, phosphatases, lots of different enzymes that do things in the cell that don't go through uh, transcriptional pathways. And proteins are these amazing multifunctional tools. And it's at least conceptually possible that you could make the incorporation of different fluorescent marks in a fiber conditional on things like the calcium level in a cell or the activity of a, of a particular phosphatase or kinase um, or some other biochemical signal. And so I think there's a possibility to generalize to other kinds of um, information and other kinds of modalities beyond uh, gene expression. With And that's, I mean, that's not something we've done yet, but that, that's a direction we're going in. I think we'll be um, interesting and distinct from what would be possible with a nucleic acid-based barcoding system. That's wonderful, but certainly inspiring. So staying with our proteins, uh, how far can multiplexing get according to your vision? And uh, uh, yeah, how many colors or how many different types of structure? What are the ideas to enable a bigger multiplexing? Yeah. Sure. Um, so uh, by multiplexing, I suppose you mean like how many different genes um, you could monitor at the same time, or how many different uh, um, transcripts you could monitor at the same time. Yeah, so um, this is pure speculation because we haven't done this yet. Um, but you could certainly imagine having um, PAC4 uh, proteins um, with different uh, peptide barcodes on them. And of course, of um, uh, you know, different peptides that you could put on the protein. And then the question becomes, okay, how many of those can you read out? If you're gonna try to read them all at the same time by fluorescence, then um, as you hinted, we're, we're limited by the number of colors you can distinguish at any one time. And depending upon how uh, fancy you are with your um, lasers and, and with your microscope, somewhere five to is, is the, the spectrum gets pretty crowded beyond beyond that um 
But I think it's conceivable that you might be able to go further than that. Um, and here's one example of how you might do it. There are thousands of different antibodies, uh, each of which recognizes a different particular uh, peptide protein motif. That's called an epitope. And so um, if and now there are systems for sequentially staining with different antibodies and then washing it off and then staining with a new one. And so if you can stabilize these fibers enough so that you can stain with one antibody and then wash it off and then stain with another and then wash it off and uh, do that over and over again, then in principle, there's no upper limit on the number of different antibodies that you could uh, stain with. And as long as you're patient enough to keep doing this over and over again, you could read out um, as many different epitope uh, barcodes as as you want. I mean, that's a concept, you know, we haven't done it yet. Uh, and I'm sure there will be some devils in the details, uh, getting antibodies in and out and having the system be stable and so on. But um, it's not a totally preposterous uh, thing to try. Yeah, that's great. And what about time resolution? I, I, say, I mean, one of the limitations is that for each thing you want to record, sorry, um, I should say one of the limitations is both for this and for the DNA barcodes is that for each thing you want to record, you have to introduce a new um, genetic uh, element into the cell. And at some point it becomes cumbersome to uh, introduce, you know, 10 or 20 different uh, uh, payloads into cells. It, uh, you know, the gene delivery efficiency is not 100%. And so if you're trying to do a large number of different genes, the chance of a cell getting all of them uh, starts to become rather small. Molecular biology issues. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. my next question would be, how can you increase time resolution? I read in the paper, but now we can record events separate by like 40 minutes or something like that. And how can you, for instance, tune the half-life uh, as you mentioned in the paper? Yeah, so, so um, it's a great question. Um, and uh, there are several aspects to the time question. One issue is if the fibers grow faster, then the uh, time stamp marks become further apart and we'll get better time resolution. But then, of course, they're going to bump into the edges of the cell. And so, so, so there's a trade-off between time resolution and total recording duration, dynamic range. And so, for instance, if you want to record for days or weeks, then you would probably have lower time resolution than if you're willing to just record for an hour. And so um, one thing we're looking into is ways to control the growth rate of these fibers so that we can uh, try to um, have um, uh, control the time resolution. If we had thinner fibers where we could have a much longer fiber inside the cell, then it could both grow fast and we could have a very, very long uh, recording as well. And so that, that would be a wonderful thing to do. Another, another aspect of controlling the time resolution is um, controlling the, the interval between your tick marks, uh, between, uh, the, the, between the seasons or, or, the, or the time stamps on these fibers. As you can imagine, if you have a... Um, uh, a clock which uh, uh, dings once an hour, it's harder to know exactly when something happens compared to if you have a clock which is giving you a time every second, right? And so um, right now, the timing between our uh, timestamp marks is set by the time to wash in and wash out these fluorescent dyes that we're adding to mark uh, time. We're thinking about systems where you can make a mark uh, of time with just a flash of light using some yeah. uh, light activated. Also for living animals, I guess it's not so suitable to give them dyes. Um, well, it turns out the dyes, you can just inject them into the bloodstream and, the, and they cross the blood-brain barrier. And Isn't so that you slow? can do periodic. Um, it's, not, it's actually not that slow. Uh, oh, right. A couple minutes. Oh, wonderful. A couple minutes That's nice. Dyes. Wow. Uh, to get in. Yeah. Um, but of course, um, as a reagent, photons uh, can enter and exit a sample uh, as fast as you could hope. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the, the photons don't hang around. You don't have to wash them out. And so as a tool for making timestamps, I think photons would be a very attractive tool. Of course, with applications in a live animal, then you have to think about how you get that light into Inside the target the tissue. Yeah.
And so ideally you would use red or even infrared light, which penetrates much better into tissue than uh, uh, bluer wavelengths of light. Your passion to light is pretty clear. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, photons are an amazing uh, reagent for, for doing biochemistry. I'm also curious how you um, decided at first uh, how to uh, overexpress to a given amount the protein in order for it to grow quick enough, but slow enough. You know, if you overexpress the protein more, probably the growth would be uncontrollable. Or if you express the protein at too low level, maybe the resolution will be too bad. How do you do experiments to decide the expression level and how do you control it? Yeah, so, so that's a great question, right? I mean, the way we started was, was very simple. Um, we had cells growing in a series of wells and we just did a, a concentration series on the, uh, on the plasmid um, for the ticker tapes um, from very high concentration to very low concentration. And then we looked at the different wells to see which ones looked, uh, looked best. Um, one of the challenges is that even for a given dose of nominal dose of the plasmid that carries this uh, ticker tape protein on it, the scaffold protein, there's tremendous variation between cells in the expression level. So some will express a lot and some will express uh, none at all. Uh, and that's because different cells will take up different amounts of plasmid and, and there's a whole bunch of uh, sources of variation um, in the population. So one of the things that we're thinking about is how to get a tighter distribution of the expression levels uh, within a population of nominally similar cells. And um, This is a problem many people have worked on. There's, for instance, feedback systems where you have, um, in addition to the protein you're trying to express, you have it express an inhibitor of its own uh, promoter so that if the expression gets too high, it shuts itself down a little bit. So it's a little bit of a self-regulating um, expression. It also There's also different gene delivery techniques, whether you do transfection, or lentivirus, or you make a transgenic cell line, which have different levels of uh, variability in the expression. Finally, to, to just control the absolute expression level, there are um, what are called drug-induced promoters. So these are um, uh, promoters, right, which can control uh, production of um, uh, RNA and then a protein, where the activity of the promoter is controlled by some drug, and you try to pick a drug, which you hope doesn't do too much else Uh, to the uh, cells or to the creature you're giving it to. And so then by controlling the time of the drug, you can control when the expression comes on and, and um, how much it comes on. And so that gives an independent degree of control. That's interesting, yeah. My, my next question is, what type of information can this system provide in addition to what we can get from omics? You know, all the time record uh, has something about what happened in the past and what's happening now, so you can compare for sure something that with omics you can only do indirectly. Do you have any suggestion on uh, what we can do with this system that omics cannot do? Sure. Um, so, um, I mean, th there's many different omic technologies, uh, and so I'm not sure exactly which one you mean. I mean, there, you know, there's proteomics, there, there's um, transcriptomics, uh, but I mean, I think you mean generally technologies for profiling some molecular markers across the tissue. And uh, I mean, those measurements are usually uh, endpoint measurements. So to get your molecular markers out of the tissue, you have to kill it uh, and extract them. And they'll tell you uh, something about the state of the tissue at the time you measured it. With the tools that uh, we're developing, you can, um, we hope, learn about the history of the tissue. So um, learn uh, you know, not just what is it doing now, but for each particular cell, what was its life history in some, uh, along some dimension, about, by some measure. Um, and so that can tell you perhaps about um, dynamics. So, uh, and, and you can record things that um, are not um, big macromolecules. So at least in principle, you could, for instance, record a history of calcium activity uh, which is something that, that you know, disappears the moment you kill the tissue, uh, but is uh, much closer to the underlying neural activity and could be a record of 
uh, neural activation. Again, we haven't done that, but that's something we're Yeah, I was also thinking of like a ligand binding receptor or a kinase activating, something like that. For sure. Yeah, all, you know, GPCR signaling, uh, receptor tyrosine kinase signaling, there's a ton of stuff that goes on in the cells. Uh, and I think, you know, in the omics world, people tend to have a very sort of uh, perhaps uh, focused or, or myopic view of um, cellular physiology. But you have to remember, cells are a lot, a lot more than just transcription and translation, right? There's all of this uh, signaling which happens. And particularly for things like neurons, which have to respond quickly, most of the interesting uh, dynamics don't go through transcription. Yeah, they are so hard to capture. Um, so yeah. related to this, what is a kind of application that you envision uh, will happen soon or that you are working on to use this system to understand a biological problem or to answer a biological question? So, so my, my dream... Oh, sorry. My, my dream, um, which is what motivated uh, me to really start this project, is to try to understand something about the nature of memory. So if you think back to what you had for breakfast this morning, uh, presumably everybody can remember uh, you know, what, what you had for your breakfast. And so there's some physical embodiment in your brain, some three-dimensional representation of that memory um, inside of the neurons in your brain. But we have no idea what that um, representation is, how that information is in uh, onto the neurons in your brain. And so my hope is that by um, recording the history of neural activity in an animal that is going through different environments and learning different things from each of them, we might be able to see which subsets of neurons were activated in each environment. Uh, then we can test the animal's memory or recollection. We can test its forgetting of these different uh, environments or different contexts. And uh, perhaps learn something about how those, um, uh, how that information is represented inside the brain. That's wonderful. So using memory systems to understand memory systems. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so a good way of putting it. can you give us an example of what you think is achievable in say five years compared to what is achievable in say 30 years? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, it's speculative, of well, course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think over the next five years, I hope we'll get these systems working in live mice. And I think it's reasonable that we might be able to put a mouse in one environment and, you know, give it some cheese and then put the mouse in a different environment and give it some Nutella and then uh, um, take out the mouse's brain and ask what was different about the representation of the cheese versus the Nutella. Or, or something like that, to, to start to learn which patterns of, of uh, which sets of neurons represent different subtle aspects of um, a, an experience or a memory in the mouse's brain. Uh, now, going 30 years is, uh, <laughs> um, you know, who knows if, you know, what we're going to be doing in 30 years. But I guess my hope is that with some combination of these kinds of tools and um, the kinds of tools that we've been developing, um, one will be able to um, really get sort of a complete picture of uh, the uh, biological macromolecules, you know, DNA, RNA, proteins, as well as um, the uh, small molecules and the signaling molecules uh, and the ions that are sloshing around in the brain. Um, and um, yeah, and the, and the sort of dynamics and the voltage all at the same time. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the dream of ultimately, of course, is not just to collect a lot of data, but to actually have some understanding of it. And, you know, I think, I hope that over the 30 year timescale, we might finally start to be able to distill out of all of these giant data sets, some of the principles, which um, must be in how the brain is storing and processing information. But that, I think, is going to take more than just better tools. That's going to take improvements in conceptual understanding as well. Yeah, that's crazy and worth enough pursuing this research. So let's take an example. What is your cellular level event 
that you want to monitor? What is your dream event? Let's say you, you've been dealing with big scale things like monitoring a living animal. Let's now think about the molecular level, some very curious signaling or whatever, that you really like and you want to monitor. Do you have an example or uh, just taking an example to show how things are done? Sure. Um, well, so um, there's another project in my lab where we're looking not at the level of the whole cell, but we're looking at individual um, synapses. And um, the question, so one question is, can you make uh, ticker tapes or ticker tape-like systems that work at individual synapses that will record when that synapse is active or what the history or plasticity is of that synapse? Because memories are perhaps not just represented at the level of individual neurons, but we think that they involve you know, specific synapses getting stronger and weaker. And so we'd like to be able to record those histories as well. Mm -hmm. And what do you think this technology might achieve in terms of diagnostics? Maybe is it worth it also to understand how diseases work and how a single patient disease is working? Sure. Well, so uh, I think there's really two parts to your questions. Um, one is, can we use these tools to study diseases? And um, that's not something that I'm working on in my lab, but I do think that as the tools uh, mature, that will be an important uh, set of applications. There are excellent um, rodent models of some diseases. You can also use these tools in human stem cell derived neurons, which you can use to model uh, different diseases. And um, you might be able to use them to identify cellular or molecular signatures of the disease and then to test for different candidate therapeutics to try to see which can uh, restore um, uh, normal function in these cells and tissues. Um, and that, that's, I think, a promising direction. A separate uh, direction, which I think you sort of hinted at, is towards diagnostics, meaning in a finding out what is causing that, per that person's illness. Now, I think it's somewhat impractical or not, not very likely that we'll use these tools in the brains of live people. I don't think they so. Involve, you know, <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're pretty invasive. Um, it's conceivable that you might use these tools in stem cell derived models. So you can take some skin from anybody and take those skin cells back, reverse the process of embryonic development to turn them into uh, then you can differentiate those stem cells into neurons, which you can grow up and you can do whatever you want with them, you know, study them. Uh, and those neurons are genetically identical, pretty much, to the neurons in the brain of uh, the person who gave the skin. And so to the extent that the person's illness is genetically driven, and to the extent that you can recapitulate it in a cell-based model, both of these are huge caveats most of the time, which are not really true, but in some cases they are, then there could be a hope that you might um, use these cellular models and a variety of different measurement uh, techniques to the molecular basis and ultimately potential therapeutics uh, for that person. That's, I think, a, a somewhat far off goal. But using these just to study basic disease biology, I think, is a very realistic and near term. It's very valuable. Yeah, indeed. Adam, thank you so much for answering all my questions related to this wonderful work. I have also a bonus question I'd be happy to ask you. You are a startup sure. founder with Q-State Biosciences, and you are deeply involved in education and outreach, especially I read in Liberia. Can you tell us how a scientist can also be an entrepreneur and a teacher? How you understand that your scientific work holds commercial potential and what's the beauty, the nightmare of founding a biotech? And yeah, last but not least, the best of what you've learned with your experience in Liberia. <laughs> That's a lot. Okay, I know. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> That was a lot of questions and one one final question. Um, okay, so so briefly, yeah, about, about um, eight years ago or so, I um, teamed up with a colleague uh, Kevin Egan, who's in the who was in the stem cell department here at Harvard, and with uh, David Margulies, who was at Boston Children's Hospital, to um, make this company, Q State Biosciences, and. Um, Q-State um, uses the voltage imaging, the optical electrophysiology tools from my lab, combined with the um, stem cell-based disease modeling, which I just described, um, including many technologies from Kevin's lab, to uh, try to create um, 
human cell-based models of different diseases and to use the electrophysiology tools to characterize those models and to test candidate therapeutics. Um, and it's been a incredible learning experience to uh, try to take these ideas, which were, you know, sort of um, somewhat vague ideas initially, and the prototypes uh, from our academic lab, and to really refine and polish them so that they're um, robust enough for, you know, um, application in drug discovery, which requires a very high standard of reliability and reproducibility in order to uh, proceed. And so, you know, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but uh, I've learned that drug development is really hard uh, and that, uh, you know, a lot of sort of academic lip service towards, oh, maybe this could be useful for uh, drug development uh, uh, is not always realistic. Uh, that, you know, it, when, when doing the drug development, it's really important to have really clean and sharp hypotheses and a very specific notion of how the tools will um, contribute towards information which can advance a drug uh, towards uh, use in patients. And it took us a while as a company to try to figure that out. I think that now the company is on an excellent path and has some very specific programs towards developing uh, therapeutics for, for pain, where we have clear biological hypotheses and are moving molecules towards uh, clinical applications. Uh, and so I'm very optimistic that this will um, uh, eventually contribute towards uh, better therapies uh, for patients. And it's just amazing to me that these genes taken from a Dead Sea uh, microorganism uh, could over decades eventually be turned into tools which are used for studying you know, human diseases of the nervous system. In terms of Liberia, um, when I was in high school, I mentioned I grew up in New York City, and one of my um, high school teachers and mentors um, uh, was a man named Asumana Randolph, who uh, had grown up in Liberia. When I was in high school, um, it was the time of the Liberian Civil War. And so there was tremendous um, uh, bloodshed and uh, suffering in Liberia. And he um, would spend time uh, during the day collecting uh, pencils and uh, notebooks and other, other things that students had left behind uh, in the hallways of the school to ship back to his relatives in Liberia uh, in order for them to use. And out of his um, income as a public school teacher in New York City, he was supporting a school in Liberia. And so um, after I graduated, uh, we, we kept in touch. And um, eventually, um, I decided to, um, uh, along with a friend, uh, to go to Liberia to try to help out with some of his science education and outreach efforts. And so this was a while ago. I spent two summers, parts of two summers in Liberia, working on uh, trying to do teacher training and um, helping set up uh, labs that uh, people could do with the uh, resources that were available locally there. There, there are you know, a lot of challenges associated with um, uh, doing education um, in uh, this context. You know, there's no reliable electricity, not necessarily clean water, um, and you know, big problems with uh, malnutrition, malaria, um, hunger, corruption, um, violence. There, there you know, a, lot, a lot of really hard problems um, there. And, um, well, certainly one of the um, uh, I really grew to appreciate from this experience was just um, my incredible good luck. Uh, you know, the, the people that I interacted with in Liberia were every bit as uh, smart and talented as people that I knew at Harvard or, or in New York City, but um, they had, you know, by chance been born in a um, context where they didn't have the opportunities to um, have the same kind of education and um, to pursue uh, uh, the kinds of activities which I, you know, basically by luck had been fortunate enough to be born into having. And so, um, yeah, it was really a striking contrast between um, the situation in Liberia where annual income um, is a few hundred dollars 
and uh, you know the situation in my lab here, where we'll spend a few hundred dollars for a mirror uh, without even thinking about it. And um, yeah, I, I think um, it's important to think about how um, one can try to um, um, increase opportunity. Not not just in, in um, uh, Liberia, but of course, I mean, even within the United States, of course, we have huge uh, variation in the degree of opportunities that people have um, at birth. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Adam, for um, explaining to us everything about your research and your wonderful career. I mean, there would be so much more to ask you, but time is limited. So I only thank you so much for all the insights and uh, I wish you best of luck with all your efforts, really. Thank you, Luca. Best of luck to you, too. Take care. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at the biotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzarabassini.com. I also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.